The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, I'd love to invite you to open your Bible, and we are going to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis in chapter 14, and you will certainly want to follow along uh, as we see the text, uh, but also as, uh, as you get to enjoy uh, me perhaps stumbling my way through a lot of really hard biblical names in chapter 14 uh, this morning, so have a little bit of grace and patience for me. I've been practicing this week on how to read some of these names, uh, but we're in Genesis and chapter 14, and what we've been doing now in the fifth week are uh, studying the book of Genesis, but particularly the narratives of the life of, at this time, Abram, but the man who we call Abraham. Abraham is central to the storyline of the Bible and God's unfolding promises to bring salvation to us in Jesus Christ, and that was promised way, way, way back in the life of Abram, who was promised Land, seed, and blessing. Those are the three elements that God promised to Abraham that we've been seeing them all throughout. The promise of a land, the promised land, the promise of seed, children, uh, inheritance of generations, and also the promise of blessing. And as we've been unfolding this story of Abram, uh, we come now to chapter 14. We find perhaps that those promises are at risk in the midst of a world that is in chaos, a fallen world where we find nations warring against other nations and people warring against one another. And Abram is going to be thrust onto a world stage of geopolitical power struggle in chapter 14. And for as much as we've been paying attention to Abram, in light of the world and the nations of the world, you know, this is just one guy, he's no big deal. In the eyes of the world and kings, but in the story of the Bible, Abram is wonderfully important. Now, at this time in chapter 14, who is this man? Just a reminder now, Abram is, he's prosperous for sure. He is a man of wealth, but he has just been a man who is kind of a wandering nomad who has been called out of Babylon into the west to this promised land, the land of Canaan. But there is nothing obvious about Abram that the world around him would see that Abram was deeply significant in the plans and purposes of God. God had promised to Abram that he would give this land of Canaan, this promised land, but there was nothing about Abram that looked like a king or a sovereign or a ruler of any kind. And Abram, at this point in time, is going to be thrust, like I said, into center stage of this geopolitical struggle but I think we could say that he would be a man reluctant to be the center of attention. Now, some people love being the center of attention. Okay? Some people fuel, uh, you know, just feed fuel off of the idea of all kinds of attention. For example, it was famously said of the 26th president, Teddy Roosevelt, his own daughter said this about him, that Teddy wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. <laughs> He wanted it all to be about him. He was a man uh, given to attention, but not Abram. But Abram is going to be thrust into center stage of world history, and we encounter it here in biblical history. So we want to see this and in it find both an encouragement and an admonition for us, the children of Abraham. But first, let us pray and hear God's word. Our great God, we thank you for the scriptures. We believe that here you reveal yourself to us. 
You reveal your will for our lives. And here we find what it means to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And so, Lord, in these ancient words, we pray that you would help us to see fresh meaning for our lives, living thousands of years later, and yet so relevant for what we need in our lives today. Lord, come and bless the reading of your word and the hearing of your word, that our minds might be illuminated to receive your truth. And Lord, may it rest deeply upon our hearts, we pray, in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God from Genesis and chapter 14. We're looking at the, the whole of chapter 14. Hear the word of God. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariach, king of Elasar, Kidderlamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kidorlamor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kidorlamor and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Asheroth Karnaim, and Zuzim in Ham, and Emim in Shavath Kiriathiam and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. And they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kidderlamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, and Raphael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to, to Hobah, north of Damascus. And he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kidderlamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveth that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And may he write its eternal truth on our hearts today. And I encourage you to keep your Bible open there in Genesis in chapter 14, because this might appear to be a very strange chapter, mysterious. There are chapters in the Bible, I think, that give us pause, wondering what in the world is this chapter even doing in the Bible, and what are we supposed to get anything out of it whatsoever? Uh, One of the things for sure that I want us to see today is that the story of history unfolds in the midst of God's unfolding purposes. The story of world history unfolds in the midst of God's unfolding purposes and plans and promise, the history and story of God's people. And in this, we are going to see a number of things today, but I want us primarily just to see two main points. Uh, And the first is an encouragement. We'll see that in the first 16 verses, an encouragement for us. And also in the second half of the chapter, an admonition or a calling, a call to action, an encouragement and an admonition. Now, first of all, the reason why the Bible has chapters like this is to encourage us to remember that the Bible is real history in real places with real people that can be externally validated to confirm that the account of the Bible is a true historical account. So when you see these names and you're wondering why in the world this record keeping and all these details, it is to confirm the authority of the scriptures. Remember that first of all. But what we're seeing, we're just going to summarize what's happening here in the first 16 verses, especially the first 12 verses, is we have a glimpse into the world of the ancient Near East and the power struggle that existed between kings and dominions and rulers and authorities. And you have the most classic storyline in terms of world domination and power. You have a cycle of an authoritative people bringing a weaker people into subjection, followed by the rebellion of that weaker people against the stronger power, And then a crushing of that rebellion by the stronger power. And then a telling of that story so as to remind all people that this authority is the strongest and to rebel is to receive the crushing defeat. So in one hand, we're seeing that account actually. And we can summarize this by saying in the ancient Near East, your might, your power, your strength was your right to do whatever you wanted. Your might was your right These kings that we're reading about here uh, were authoritative and powerful, and they had the region of Sodom and the south area on the south side of the Dead Sea in subjugation. 
and Sodom and some of its surrounding cities revolt against their lords. We see that, the kings, in verse 2. Twelve years, these cities have been subject to this eastern power, and after twelve years, they had had enough, and they rise up in the thirteenth year to rebel against their masters from the east. And when the news travels to the east of the rebellion of these lesser people, in the 13th year we find King Kidderlaomor rising up with other kings that he is an ally with to lay down the rebellion. Okay, this is geopolitical world powers in struggle with one another. They are riding out to suppress the revolution. You see there in verse 9 that it is the kingdoms of four kings against the kingdoms of five kings who meet to do war in the valley of Siddim, which is the Dead Sea. Real people, real places, real kingdoms, real power struggles. And you see in the details of the text, there's this tracing of their battle plans. Essentially what happens is that uh, the kings ride around both directions to essentially surround the city of Sodom so as to cut off Sodom from their confederate cities, neutralize their armies, and send the rest of them scattering. And uh, verse 10 to 12 essentially suggests that, uh, that these eastern kings lay down this rebellion and mop up all the rebellion with quite ease. And you say, what in the world does this have anything to do with anything? Well, for one reason, quickly, uh, these eastern kings who were coming from the region of Babylon uh, would not have access to some of the material riches and natural resources that these cities provided them particularly the region of Sodom, which was rich in copper that could provide metal for making tools and weapons. And so these eastern kings relied on these cities to provide and export these raw materials so that the strength could continue to grow in strength. Okay, so that's one particular reason. But the real point of this chapter is in verse 12. This so-called geopolitical struggle is in the Bible because of verse 12. That in the midst of this power struggle, they, the conquering forces of Kidderlamor and his armies, took Lot. Remember Lot? He's Abraham's nephew, who in chapter 13 decided to go and pursue the lands in and around Sodom, not knowing that that would put him in the center of this power struggle among nations. Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom, his possessions and all of his house went their way with these conquering kings. And Lot is carted off and news comes to Abram. And it's amazing, if you stop to think about this account, biblically speaking, that Abram's name is included in the record of history alongside these great kings of the ancient world. King Kedorlaomer and the kings of Babylon, these great imperial forces, and it's all in the middle of this story of this man, Abram. Now, there's something in that that is deeply significant, and I want us to see it. It tells us something, I think, about the relationship between the story of world history and the, the events that make headlines, the events that make the cover of Time magazine and get featured on the news and the unfolding purposes of the story of God. God's story and his unfolding purposes and promises 
might not be the things that make the headlines and get featured on the news. But that story of God's story is the real story. And the story of power struggles and nations is but a footnote in the story of God's story. And if you want the most perfect illustration of this, keeping in mind the fact that great king Kidder Lamor is only in the Bible because of Abram, do you remember how the Christmas story is introduced to us? In the days of Caesar Augustus, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, in Luke chapter 2, and in Luke chapter 3, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, when Philip was tetrarch in the region of Trachantus, all these important people and all these important places and all these important things, it goes on to say what? Jesus Christ is born. And God calls a man named John who lives in the desert and eats locusts to call forth a people to repentance and faith. All these nations of the world are but the backdrop for the unfolding purposes and promises of God in history. God's attention, God's story is on Abram and his children and the unfolding promises that he has given to them that he will surely fulfill. Okay, Make something significant of that. You don't have to work very hard to do that because what that is saying actually is that what is grand in the world is not always what is a part of the unfolding purposes of God and his promises and story. The things that make the headlines and things that are printed in shiny letters and get all the attention might not have anything to do with you and your individual lives, but your lives, our lives together as God's people are a part of God's story. And so what that means then, in very clear application, is that the, the teenager in junior high school and in high school who decides to build their life and make their decisions according to what would please God, maybe rather than their friends, is a big part of God's story. The Christian employee who goes and has an honest day's work is a part of God's story. The Christian employer who treats his employees with equity and fairness and kindness, that's a part of God's story and his purposes. The parent who puts their child to bed and maybe whispers a silent prayer, that's a big part of God's story. The parent who has to discipline a child but then pulls them close and explains why this way is God's way rather than this way, that's a part of God's story. These things which seem so ordinary so not extraordinary whatsoever are actually the unfolding purposes of God in history to bring about a wonderful purpose. And Kidder Lamor and all of his armies is just the backdrop for the unfolding purposes of God and his story of Abram. God's story unfolds not primarily in the headlines, but in the ordinary lives of God's people. But right now in chapter 14, that story and those promises are at risk, you see. Because the whole promises of God to give Abram descendants and reign in a land is all at risk when Abram's only actual blood relative, Lot, has been captured. 
And if this promised land can be so easily subjected by foreign kings, then what good does it stand to be a promised land of God for his people? And so both the promise of the seed and promise of the land are at risk right now. And so here's what happens. So we see this encouragement of the backdrop of God's story in world history, but also this admonition. Look at verse 13 through 16. You find almost in just this quick summary that Abram gathers together 318 men and goes about this heroic rescue of Lot from these other kings. Now, it says it quickly, but I think there's something in there to consider, and I think there's also a wonderful point of application there for us, because if you think about the fact that Abram received news that Lot had been taken captive, Abram has to decide in that moment whether or not he's going to intervene. We see that he does, of course, but you and I are often put in scenarios where we are being forced with the question of whether or not we will enter in to bring help or aid or assistance or kindness, whatever the case might be. When we find ourselves in these situations, maybe these ethical quandaries, we're asking ourselves a number of questions. Now, think about the fact that when Abram is considering where Lot is, Lot's the one who made the decision to go to Sodom. Lot is the one who made the decision to put himself at risk. Lot is the one who put himself in this place. And when Abram gets the news, you can imagine maybe he says, well, he got what's coming to him. Well, sometimes we respond that way about people, I think. Well, you've got two questions that you have to ask when you find yourself in situations when you're saying, well, should I, should I step into this? Should I intervene? Whatever the circumstances might be, your nephew might not get captured by Eastern kings and be subjected to you know, their rule. So you might not be in the same situation as Abram, but you have been in a place when you're asking yourself the question, should I get involved in this or not? And you mostly ask two questions. And the first one is, does that person deserve my help? Do they deserve my help? Lot put himself in there his own, it's his own doing. Do they deserve my help? And two, if I choose to get involved, will there be any risk of inconvenience for me? Does this person deserve my help and can I do it without risk of inconvenience? Now again, I think these are natural ways that we process scenarios, ethically speaking. Again, Lot, maybe we could say didn't deserve to be rescued. And helping him for Abram was not going to be risk-free. Abram could have totally left Lot to his own fate. You know, you made that bed, now lie in it, and it's your choice. If Abram is going to respond and risk, he's going to risk his life, and he's going to make powerful enemies along the way because one of those kings, King Amraphel, is king of Shinar, which is Babylon, which is where Abram used to live. And so Abram would literally be rebelling against the king from his previous kingdom. But he chooses to prefer a greater king. He chooses to prefer a closer kinsmanship with his own nephew. 
And as the divinely appointed ruler of the land of Canaan, Abram chooses to take up the sword to intervene on behalf of this oppressed people and his nephew, even when they didn't recognize his rule over them. Abram overtakes the forces of these four mighty kings, goes up to the northern border of the promised land and defeats them, and then goes south, wins this resounding victory and rescues Lot and returns all the spoil that had been stolen. That's quite a story. And in that story, we don't want to see just, you know, the movement of pawns of world history. We want to see how amazingly clear that narrative shows us the gospel. And it does, doesn't it? Do do you see it? If in circumstances of need we're asking ourselves questions of deserving and risk of consequence... As Christian believers, we must keep in mind the fact that what? Jesus did not sit idly by in heaven waiting for us to be deserving. If Jesus was waiting for us to be worthy enough to come and save, an eternity would have passed by and we would have never been worthy enough, would we? Jesus enters into this world, though we are not worthy, and is willing to lay down his life, not because it would be without risk or at his highest convenience, but to refuse the riches of heaven and privileges of heaven and prefer to come and take on the form of a servant and live and suffer and die for those who are unworthy. And the proof of his great love is also a stinging word against our pride, as Paul says in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The only thing that qualifies us to be recipients of the love of God is that we refuse it. The only thing that qualifies us to receive his mercy is that we would prefer not to have it because we are sinners. But the grace of God displayed in his love is enough to cause us to turn from ourselves and our own little kingdoms to serve the one true and living God who rescues us from the peril of our sin and delivers us, though we are unworthy, to live for his eternal kingdom. And this chapter in the Bible actually has everything to do with the unfolding of that glorious kingdom that Christ has come to establish in your heart and mine. Because Abram shows us that being blessed as a child of God is infinitely more important than being lauded and praised in the sight of men. Do you see this in verses 17 through 24 and through the rest of the chapter? Abram rescues Lot. And then two of the kings of the cities that were under attack from the eastern kings, they come to him. Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, and he's from uh, the city of Salem, uh, which is uh, pre-Jerusalem at this time, which that city means peace, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the other king, Bera, the king of Sodom. You have these two kings who come to Abram after he has won this heroic victory for their sake. And the two kings come to Abram, the victor, who's delivered them, and they have two different dispositions. Melchizedek, who we see in verse 18, king of Salem, brings Abram bread and wine. Because not only is he a king, he is also a priest of God Most High, Yahweh, the same God who had called Abram. And Melchizedek 
blessed Abram in verse 19. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Do you remember in chapter 12 when God told Abram, I will bless those who bless you? Melchizedek says, blessed be Abram and blessed be the God of Abram. And to Melchizedek, Abram also acknowledges him. But notice the other king. Verse 21, and the king of Sodom says to Abram, comes to him, not with a blessing, not with thankfulness for his deliverance or rescue, not with an acknowledgement of God's role. Bera comes and says, let's strike a deal. You have all the stuff, I'll take all the people. Or in other words, I'll set up for myself what I was previously subject to from the kings of the east. I'll become Lord over another people. Give me those people. You can have all the goods. You can have all the money. But give me the people. Do you see the the contrast here between Melchizedek and Bera? Abram is faced then with the blessing from God Most High by way of his king and priest Melchizedek or the allures of the temptations of wealth from the king of Sodom. And you see the dilemma. But Abram, of course, recognizes that the victory is God's and he gives Melchizedek a a tenth of all of what uh, he had received back from the foreign kings and the rest he just gives back to Sodom. He gives back to the king of Bera. And in that moment, Abram is preferring to receive God's blessing than to receive this abundance of wealth. He prefers to receive, by way of Melchizedek's blessing, the blessing of God than all these material goods that Sodom wants to provide for him. God's blessings, which are intangible and oftentimes unseen, Abram would rather be rewarded with God's blessing than to give into the temptation that brought Lot to Sodom and got Abram involved in this in the first place. Do you see all that? And in that, Abram is this wonderful example for us of the most basic reality of all the Bible. This story is just basic first commandment stuff. You shall have no other God. Abram, you shall have no other God. People of God in Edgington, the Bible says to us, This God and this God alone, you shall have no other gods before me. And Abram is demonstrating that with his faithfulness, with his obedience, with what he chooses to be blessed by, which is oftentimes unseen and received by faith, rather than the applause of man and the goods of this world. You know, Sodom, the king of Sodom, Bera, and the city of Sodom is, if you like, as a metaphor, always looking for those who are willing to be tempted to become its citizens. Come and live here. Come and have all these things and fulfill all your worldly desires. But forsake the blessing of God. And Abram shows us that it is better to be blessed by God than to receive the applause and the goods and the fame of this world and sets before us this beautiful picture of the gospel. What God will you serve? What kingdom will you subject yourself to? And who will you worship? And Abram says, 
This God and this God alone. He himself, what he does for Lot's sake, is a picture of the gospel and a demonstration of grace. When Lot is undeserving and cannot help himself, Abram saves Lot and then shows us also that it is better to be blessed by God with what is unseen than to succumb to this temptation of Sodom. Isn't it amazing what sometimes these obscure chapters in the Bible really are saying to us? And in it, demonstrating that on every page of the Bible, every single page is filled with the wonders of the story of the gospel of a God who redeems sinners and blesses them. And we who receive that are constantly called to reaffirm our faith and trust in this God, this gospel, this kingdom. So may it be so for us as well. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for chapters like these that seem perhaps on the surface to be uh, lacking in biblical instruction. And yet, Lord, we find such glorious truths. We pray that you would help us to apply them. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be wise, diligent, walking in the ways of Christ and obedient and claiming you and you alone as our God. May it be so, we pray in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.